we'll pick up where we left off if you'll turn in your Bible to Mark 11. And you remember we, we left with uh, Jesus going into the temple but not, not uh, doing anything. He just looked around and, and uh, you know, we talked about how we today, our bodies, us individually... We are the body uh, or the temple today, right? And so the question, this really rocked me along with today's lesson really rocked me when I started thinking about um, things like, so if Jesus comes into my life, well, he is there, you know, and what does he see in his temple today? Me. What does he see in me, in my life? You know, all my sins are, are they're basically committed in God's temple. And that, you know, that really, I mean, it saddens me, it, you know, uh, that, that he would probably see the same types of things taking place. And then as I studied this week in this lesson, this even got more personal, you know, which you'll see as we move forward. But, um, you know, it's just an interesting thought to think of each day if if God were to literally, you know, in my mind, walk in and see what is going on. Would he be pleased? Would he do what he's getting ready to do in the temple here with me? And thank goodness he doesn't, or, you know, I would be uh, turned over as well, right? And, uh, you know, one thing that I... Speaking of that, I certainly never, ever want to make light of sin. But when we think of our sin, for me personally, it magnifies the grace of God. Because I kind of look at it like this. And I say this a lot to parents of of young men that I counsel or to wives of men that I counsel that if my wife kicked me to the curb every time I messed up, I'd never make it to the front porch. You know, and thank goodness the grace of God operates in our lives in that manner, right? Because, I, I mean, I just don't, if Jesus were to treat me the way that he went into the temple that we're getting ready to see, you know, I would just have to crawl underneath a rock and hide. But his grace is so um, magnificent and his mercy so sweet that I know that when I mess up that I can... First John 1, 9, right? I can confess my sins and know that he is faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. So uh, keep that kind of in mind as we're moving forward here through Mark 11. Today we're going to um, pick up in verse 20. Uh, I'm sorry, not verse 20, verse 12. So they've gone into, they, they, he went into the temple where we ended in verse 11 and went back to Bethany that night. And then verse 12, it says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, and he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And as he was teaching them, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So here we have, you know, it's morning. Again, he walked into the temple the night before. Now it's morning, and and they're, they're going back to Jerusalem from Bethany, and Mark tells us that Jesus was hungry. You know, does that strike you funny? I mean, Mark, for for whatever reason, he wants us to know that. Here he is, it's morning, he's hungry. Jesus is God, but he's also, at this point, was fully man, so he's subject to the limitations of man, of being a human, right? What are some other uh, human characteristics, attributes that Jesus had, even though he's fully God? What comes to your mind? Some other things. Yes, ma'am. He was tired, certainly. He slept. I mean, when he, um, you know, was he would become weary. Slept in a boat, right? Pardon? He wept. He wept, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I, that's a big one, you know, that he had compassion and uh, for people, and he wept. Did you have one, John Michael? He, uh, he has hunger. I thought of another one that, you know, might have to clarify a little bit. He... He got angry, right? I mean, he he got angry. Now, his anger was righteous anger. We need to be careful there. But, um, you know. You know, I thought about that one. I really did. And um, I personally, and we can talk about this. Y'all can give me some help here. I, I personally, I came up with no, but. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't say specifically, but it does say specifically that he was tempted in every way. Sure. And with that, one second, with that, certainly he sweat blood because, is that what you were going to say? And that had to, you know, some element of fear, if you want, you know, not, well, let's say it this way he didn't have sinful fear. Although he was tempted in all ways, but as we are, but without sin. But certainly he had enough, uh, and I've never been afraid of anything enough to make my capillaries burst and really bleed, right, in my sweat. So, you know, uh, pardon? Dread? Yeah, dread of knowing what was, yeah. Because certainly he would have hit his hand with a hammer in the carpenter shop right, and know the pain that's involved there, and he knew the nails were coming, so, yeah, you know, that, he, he knew the physical pain that would be coming on him, too, too. You know what, I don't think he had fear, because he had perfect love, and it says perfect love casts out fear, yeah. that's good, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Sure. Yeah, I think there's definitely a difference between you'd have you know clarify between sinful fear and um, adrenaline pumping bear in the woods. Uh, shows us that knowing God and knowing the truth and um, praying can overcome those natural man-like um, what is, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, emotions emotions yeah. that we have. You know, I mean, Jesus often went by himself and prayed. And I think that that truly shows that Jesus himself needed encouragement from the Father to, you know, take to on make what it he was through. taking sure. on. You know? sure. Yeah, anything else? So lots of human characteristics that he would display as he walked the earth, which, you know, the biggest one to me, you know, the hunger thing. I mean, think of when he was being tempted by the devil. Do you ever wonder why Satan said, just picture this for a minute. He, he said, you know, you, you can turn these stones into to bread, right? Now, he hasn't eaten in 40 days. And, and if you study that, stones out in the wilderness where they were at are everywhere. It's not like there was a rock here or there. You know, that part of the world is covered in stones all over the place. And also, every single day of his life as a young boy, as a teenager, as a young man, that he walked back into his mama's home, what would he have smelled? Fresh baked bread, right? My mom lives with us. She lives downstairs, and my mom is a gourmet cook. She cooks bread probably twice a week. That's mine and my wife's weakness, hot buttered bread. I mean, you can kind of tell, right? And we're trying to abstain from the bread, and it just wafts, is that the right word? Wafts up through the floor. Oh, gosh. Oh, you know, when Satan did that to Jesus, I imagine he started to drool, salivate, right? That bread, he probably smelled it because of memory. Hadn't eaten in 40 days. Look at all these rocks. Oh, that could all be bread. So those kind of things certainly were human characteristics. Why he was hungry? We don't really know. Mark doesn't tell us, right? I read lots of different opinions. One of them was the first meal isn't served until later in the morning, so he hadn't eaten yet, right? Maybe he spent the night in prayer and he, he didn't have breakfast. We, we just don't know. We just know that he leaves and uh, and. Mark doesn't give us an, an explanation. Maybe he was so engrossed with what was coming later in the week that uh, he didn't have an inclination to eat until he saw the side of the fig tree in full leaf. Maybe that made him. How many of y'all watch cooking shows? You know, Chopped, you know, that's a great show. But what's one thing that's for certain? 
If you're not full when you start to watch one of those shows, are you beelining to the fridge at commercial time? You know, I am, right? <laughs> yeah, but I got to be disciplined to know what I'm beelining for or, or it's bad news. But, you know, so that same type of thing, you know, I think would be going on there. But one thing we know for certain is that the mention of hunger prepares the way for the story that's following. And that's just how the Word of God works, isn't it? He, he, I love that God uses ordinary things. He doesn't come off up with these ideas in his word that none of us are going to get. We all get. When you see something you know, appealing and you're hungry, we get that, right? And so this prepares the way for the story. And, and the scripture there tells us, And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. The brilliant green foliage of the tree, he just simply caught the eye of Jesus while he was still a long way off. Fig trees have very large leaves, and they're very distinctive in their shape, too. You know, you can look at an oak tree, and, um, you know, we got around here, we've got the white oak, the red oak, the southern red oak, the black oak, the uh, post oak, or however many others, right? And and you got to really know your leaves to be able to look at those and tell which one that is. A fig, once you see it and you know what they are, there's no question, hey, that's a fig, right? You don't have to know the difference between the different strains of fig trees. And fig trees were abundant in Israel. Jesus probably had one in the yard where he grew up. And uh, it's mentioned fig trees are in Israel are mentioned at least 50 times in the scriptures, and um, this particular tree uh, must have been located in a really good spot for growing because apparently its development was way ahead of schedule. It must have been out in, you know, the perfect soil conditions, perfect watering conditions, perfect sunshine conditions because it was way ahead of schedule. I'm sure you experienced those um, things in your yard you plant a couple of the same variety of things and one of them does real well and the other one's not you start to kind of study well maybe this one's not getting enough sun and so forth this one had to have been in the perfect spot because here it is in full leaf ahead of season so interestingly in fig trees the fruit appears along with and even sometimes before the leaves Unlike an apple, which you may have in your yard, right? An apple tree blooms first, then the leaves come and the fruit comes after that. The fig, they come at the same time. And it goes on there and says, When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Jesus found no figs because it wasn't the season. Now that just puzzles me. I don't know about y'all, but think about that. The figs come on before the leaves or at the same time of the leaves, Jesus would have known that. And he goes to the tree and there's no figs. So what does that mean? So I I just had the curiosity got the best of me on this. So I, I read an account of a guy, a pastor in California, who planted a fig tree to help him understand this parable. Because I'm telling you, in the commentaries I looked at, you got all kinds of people that came up with all kinds of whacked out ideas of what could be going on here. And, uh, you know, just trying to complicate things. So this this particular guy, pastor, this is what he wrote. He bought a fig tree, planted it in his yard, and he says the following, quote, The first spring I watched with interest as the barren limbs of the tree began to swell. 
the, the buds began to fill out and the leaves appeared. To my astonishment, tiny figs appeared right along with the leaves. Day by day, I watched these tiny figs grow and turn from green to yellow. Soon they began to appear ripe, so I picked one and sampled it. I was disappointed to find that instead of being full of juice and pulp as a normal fig would be, it was dry and withered inside with no juice. I waited a few more days, checked out the other figs, and they were the same. I thought, my fig tree is a lemon. Time passed and more figs appeared on the tree. They swelled and ripened. I opened one of these figs, later figs, assuming it would be dry and withered like the first ones, but it was sweet and rich, juicy and pulpy. I learned that a fig tree produces two kinds of figs, the early figs that look like figs but are not true figs, and later figs which are the true figs and are sweet and tasty. I've since learned that if a fig tree does not produce the early figs, it will not produce the true figs that come later. So I uh, consulted with our local church uh, biologist Friday night on this at a fellowship we were at, and uh, Mark Ray, and, and he affirmed me that this is how figs do, right? So I think what was going on here is that Jesus came at a time when the latter, the true tasty figs were out of season, but the tree should have at least had those early figs on it. Now, which they, they, they're not real tasty as that author showed us there, but certainly they're edible and they would quench hunger, right? Like... Um, you may ex have experienced um, a crab apple. You know, a crab apple's not going to be your best eating apple, but if you're hungry and that's all you got, you're going to eat that crab apple. So Jesus knew what to look for in a fruitful tree. Like I said, he probably had a fig tree in their yard at home, but he looked and he didn't even find any of these early figs. He knew that this tree, because of that, wouldn't have the good tasting later figs. So it looked like a healthy tree from a distance, but because the leaves, but, but because all the leaves were on it, and, but it wasn't productive. Now, you, can you kind of see where he's starting to go with this? The fig tree was a standard symbol for Israel. As numerous Old Testament passages attest, I've got several. If you want, if you're writing, you can jot these down. Jeremiah eight thirteen, Jeremiah twenty nine seventeen, Hosea nine. Verse 10 and verse 16, Joel chapter 1, verse 7, Micah 7, 16. So the fact that this tree had this beautiful foliage on it but had no fruit portrayed exactly what Jesus had seen in the temple the night before. Remember what we, when we talked a lot last time that I taught about what the temple looked like, a magnificent structure. And yet, you know, anybody looking at that would think that, oh, this is the house and where we go and we worship God and Jesus goes in there and he finds nothing. It, Israel was a barren fig tree. It only had leaves and you know, that only covered the nakedness of what was really going on in the form of worship of God there. The fig tree was meant to be a visual parable to Israel and later to us as a church, right? Just because we look good, and this, you know, I mean, I, this kind of stuff bothered me when I read this this week, you know, just because we look good, because our leaves are large and shiny, doesn't mean that we're bearing fruit for God. 
you know, activity does not mean bearing fruit. You know, that fig tree produced great foliage, but no fruit. It had lots of activity, but no fruit. Jesus went to it and found Think of the birds that would have been going to that. You know, that's one of the common things if you've ever grown a fruit tree in your yard, particularly a fig tree. I don't have any, but the old ministry house had several of them on it. And right about the time you think, well, I'm going to go tomorrow. Those things look really good. Tomorrow they're going to be just perfect. And you go, and they're all pecked full of holes or they're gone because guess who else knows when they're just perfect? The possums, the raccoons, and the birds, right? And the squirrels, yeah. So no fig newtons for, for that one. So, you know, that's what the, you know, if, what if the church was like that, right? The barren fig tree graphically illustrates the empty fabrication of the worship that was going on in the temple when he went there. So, he says to it, uh, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. The symbolic message of the cursing of the fig tree is identical to the message of the cleansing of the temple. And Mark puts this next little statement there. And his disciples heard it. I mean, whoa. You know, his disciples heard it. They were personally witnesses to what he said. And again, I think this is a strong warning for the, against unproductiveness. Here the tree is judged not for its lack of fruit, but because of what? It's deceptive show. You know, everybody, oh, there's fake. It's deceptive show is what the problem was. And again, that really bothered me when I read that. Listen to this commentator named English. He says, we are justified in taking the story as it stands. Like I said, all these commentators try to come up with all these ideas of why this could be. But this guy says, we are justified in taking the story as it stands and in seeing in its starkness and destructiveness a solemn warning of what was in fact to happen in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. So that takes place, Jesus and the disciples, they leave there and they continue their journey into Jerusalem. And verse 15 is the second entry, right? He went in yesterday and here he comes again, coming in again. Remember, they went back to Bethany, here he comes. The day before, how did he enter? As what? King of Israel. On this day, I think he's entering, as we'll see, as God's high priest, pronouncing, what is a high priest? He pronounces judgment on the perversion of worship that was going on in the temple. So two different entries, right? First one king, now high priest. Jesus was walking towards Jerusalem, approaching the temple, and he saw, again, this magnificent, and this will continue to unfold in the next couple of weeks, this magnificent building, this temple, these huge marble walls. Have Have you ever seen Big, big pieces of marble. You ever drive up around Tate, Georgia, and Nelson in that area? I don't know about you. I don't know why, but marble is is intriguing to me. These, you know, there's a a marble quarry on uh, Highway 53 between Tate and Dawsonville, and everything's white there, where they dig this stuff out of the ground. The trees are kind of covered in a white film, but when you see these massive pieces of marble I don't know what why it it intrigues me you know just it's just really pretty so with the sun shining on this as they're coming you know the sun is right probably I don't know what time of day this was it's morning we know and 
but you know the sun how it has that crisper gleam to it early in the morning uh, well maybe that's just around here because the pollution kicks in later on I don't think they had all that going on but maybe well they probably had some you know as people were cooking with fires going you know it would would start to mask the sunlight but the marble just shining and again as we studied last time these huge Passover crowds are already flowing up the steps towards the court of the Gentiles so there's the sun shining, the beautiful marble, all these people, and and then this court of the Gentiles, this is where this was all taking place. If you look at a picture, a diagram of the temple, this was an area that that was paved with marble. Um, It it was uh, at least three football fields in length and 250 yards wide, right? So, I mean, this is a large area within the temple. And it, this polished, pure white marble all over the place. And Jesus seeing these crowds, as we said last time, pressing against, you know, the, the I mean, these, these crowds were from all over. They weren't just from around there. I'm, I got some statistics in a minute we'll look at as to how many people we're really talking about that were here. So here they are inside this court of the Gentiles, pressing against the tables of the money changers. In Exodus chapter 30, it tells us that... Uh, they were commanded uh, that a half shekel be given for every male worshiper that was over 20 years old. So one of the problems here is that uh, they wouldn't take foreign money because it had idolatrous images on it. So they got to have a money changer, right? Everyone had to exchange their money for these particular coins. And of course, there was a charge for that service. And the chief priests and the scribes, guess what? You know, they're making a little cut here as well, right? And so the operations in the court of the Gentiles had become known. Listen to this. This really rung a bell with me. This became known as as the Bazaar of Annas, so named for the greedy high priest, right, whom before Jesus would be tried in his arrest, and you can read that in John 18. So this guy's in charge of all that. The high priest that's, that's... you know, brings Jesus to the point of execution. He, he'd been deposed by the Romans, but his son-in-law, the uh, Caiaphas, you remember him, was there as well, his wicked son-in-law, I think, but um, Anna still r- retained the title of high priest and had tremendous power and influence over everybody that was there, even though he wasn't the acting high priest at that time. So between the two of them, the son-in-law and, and Annas, they ran the temple's business. So you, you get the idea of what's going on in there, right? Um, they even sold franchises. So they're skimming money off the money change thing. They sold franchises to the merchants who were, who, who were there at exorbitant prices, skimming off huge percentages for themselves as well. You know, the vendors, you know, they make money, They and then... Annas and Caiaphas make money off of them. So you got the large crowds pressing against the money table, you know, trying to get their money exchanged. Then you got these uh, vendors selling livestock. They would have had ducks and, or, or fowl, I guess pigeons is what it said. Some translations said uh, doves and some said pigeons. And I thought, well... I wonder why, and I didn't come up with a good answer. I ate pigeon when I was in Egypt um, in November. That's a, it's 
something they stuffed pigeons with rice and wasn't bad. I'm mostly all probably eaten dove before. It's the same same line of bird, right? And and so I think the poorer you were, you would have I think that's the answer I came up with is a pigeon cost a little bit more. So if you were extremely poor you would buy a dove and, and the people with a little more money would buy the pigeons. And the wine was being sold and salt for sacrifices. And Josephus says that during this particular Passover, there were, get this, 2,000 or 255,600, so over a quarter of a million lambs sacrificed. Can you imagine that? I mean, I'm like, wow. And, 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 you know, if you were traveling a long way, you're probably not going to bring one of yours because I imagine, you know, with all the corruption that was going on there, that something the Annas and Caiaphas and these other guys that are in on this whole deal, they're probably going to find a glitch in your lamb anyway. You know, well, he stepped on a stone on the way here and he's limping a little bit. You know, well, he's not any good. You got to buy one from us. Sorry. You know, so I'm sure that kind of stuff went on, you know, but two, a quarter of a million at least lambs were offered. Josephus went on to say if there were 10 offerers to a Passover over lamb, that would mean that there were close to 2,700,000 celebrants in Jerusalem at this time. So there are lots of people here. It, can you imagine the noise in the court of the Gentiles with this many people pressing in, everybody hustling and bustling, merchants you know, I want you to buy my pigeon. You know, uh, you know, they, Randy wants you to buy his dove. You know, or I want you, I'll give you a better exchange rate on your money. You know, and so everybody's shouting to the customers. You know, and, and when I thought about that, I remember when Kit and I um, were with our, our friends, the Dowdies, the missionaries in Mexico City. They took us to this market near their house that was just fabulous. I mean, fresh fruits and vegetables like you've never seen. And just beautiful, although knowing the whole time if you taste it, you're going to have Montezuma's revenge, you know. But, um, but they're all screaming and hollering, you know, buy mine, buy mine, buy mine. And, I mean, I was just like in a whirlwind, you know, and Jim would have to come and get me and drag me over here because I would get just lost in the crowds there. And that's what would be going, just chaotic as people were trying to sell their, this is, now what are we talking about? The temple and worship, and this is what's going on. All the noise of the animals, do you think they sat there quietly? I don't think so. What about the aroma? You know, I'm sure they were doing their business in there as well. And this was an enclosed area. Right, So think of that. All these people and all that going on. I think it was probably the county fair and the New York Stock Exchange all rolled into one. Just all going on at the same time. To top that off, the court of Gentiles here was also used as a regular Jerusalem cut-through because it offered a convenient shortcut through the town en route to the Mount of Olives. The court of the Gentiles was a huge religious circus at this point. Now, and here is our Lord walking into this, right? And what he sees is a massive desecration of holy ground. The royal porch, which 
sat at the site of Solomon's original temple, bordered the court of Gentiles on the south side. That had been holy ground for what? Thousands of years. Ever since Solomon finished his great dedication, uh, can't say that word, dedicated, when he dedicated, he did his prayer of dedication, let's say it that way. And the glory of the Lord so filled the temple there that the priests couldn't even enter it, right? All they could do was kneel on the pavement outside. That's in Second uh, Chronicles 7. All this sacrilege was taking place right in front of our Lord. He agonized as he surveyed this. You know, remember he was in there the night before. They were getting this all set up. And that's what he surveyed. And now he's agonizing as it's coming. Earlier in his first cleansing of the temple, you remember, we can read that in John 2.17, says his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus said that to his father. Literally, the Greek idea is eat me up. The Hebrew means burn up in a flame. Any way you take it, Jesus was being burned up with zeal for the house of the Lord. And all this has taken place there. So Mark is very clear about what Jesus did. Again, he walks in, verse 15, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who said, who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Flipping over the tables is a quite violent act, right? I mean, think about that. The com- this commentator, Woist, says to have their tables overturned and their money thrown all over the floor on the eve of Passover was to deal their business a serious blow at a time when the money traffic was at its height. So think about it. Peak money time. Jesus walks in, flips the tables over. Now, what would you do if that was your table? All you're interested in is making a profit anyway, right? And now your coins are rolling all over the place. And now he comes over to this table and flips that one. That guy's coins. Now all our coins are all mixed up together. I'm on the floor gathering coins, right? And think about that. I probably got some of yours too, right? I mean, you know, when this is kind of a silly illustration, but um, there's this pet treat called Charlie Bears. They sell at Trader Joe's. They're like these little crackers. Does anybody have Charlie Bears? Well, what, you can get a handful of Charlie Bears, and the fun thing to do is just throw them across the floor like that, and the dogs just, you know, they run around. That's, that's what was going on here. These money changers are, you know, if I can gather more coins, you don't know if it's your coin or not. They're all the same currency, right? So I got more, you know. And then he comes in and turns over the seats of those who sold the pigeons. In verse 16, he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That's Mark is the only one that talks about this. And this puzzled me a bit because it says um, he wouldn't allow any individual. The best translation is to carry a vessel. The ESV says uh, anything. New American Standard says merchandise with a footnote for vessel. King James says any vessel. And I think the best translation of that is vessel. So this practice of cutting through the temple had turned, you know, like I said, into a common thing. It's a shortcut showing, again, great irreverence for the temple. Cut through, right? And 
I think the King James accurately states that Jesus wouldn't allow anyone to carry a vessel through the temple. The vessel, I, I don't think I'm stretching this here. Y'all, we can discuss this if you'd like. But I think what Jesus was doing was saying that this, you can't carry a utensil for the purpose of worship. You know, they used utensils in their worship services here. And I'm sure because of laziness of human beings, everybody was cutting through there with everything. You know, I bought a candle. I'm cutting through here. It's closer to go home. But I think the main point for us to see is that he was talking about an instrument that was used for worship. Um, If that's the case, then think about this. And this is why I say this. If that's the case, then Jesus not only shut down the commerce by turning over the tables of the temple, but he also shut down the religious rituals as well. He just closed the whole thing down. You know, you can't have any vessels in here. You can't do any of this in here. uh, In Leviticus and Numbers both, it shows us that God had instituted rituals for the temple at Jerusalem that, that required the priests to have these tools, these vessels. They had to bring animals into the temple, right? They had to bind them on the altar. They had to slay them. What did they slay them with? A utensil. Or, uh, they had to catch the blood in, in basins. They had to take the bodies of the burnt animals off of the fire that burned continually. So this would have been a continual procession of the priests coming all day long, in and out, in and out, in and out. On this day, Jesus was halting everything. He refused to acknowledge these rituals as having any meaning or value because they certainly didn't. Basically, God was no longer going to accept these meaningless rituals that they were up to, because they were totally worthless in the eyes of God. The temple was the heart of the nation of Israel, remember? And Jesus cursed the heart of Israel by rejecting its worship. And I think that's key to remember. This is exactly what the cursing of the fig tree represented. He cursed the fig tree, now he's cursing their activity in the temple. Israel, like the fig tree, was no longer bearing fruit. It produced nothing but leaves. It appeared to have value in life, but it really didn't. And then, as always is the occasion, as we've learned going through Mark, is Jesus is always teaching. Verse 17 says, and he was teaching them. Bold action of Jesus, right? I'm sure this brought the crowd together, you know, people back further in the line. That guy that came in as king yesterday, he's in there turning the place upside down. He uses the opportunity to teach, and he says to them in verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? That's a quote from Isaiah 56, 7. This states the main purpose for the court of Gentiles. And this is, this is really key to this whole thing. This is the place where Gentiles, the non-Jews, were to come and worship. And what had the Jews done to it? Right? This is where the Gentiles were supposed to go and worship. And the Jews are in there turning the place into a, a madhouse, right? A place that it would have been impossible for the Gentiles to come in and concentrate. It would have been impossible for them to come in and pray. But because of the convenience, the Gentiles couldn't go in any other part of the temple. This is the only area that they could go in was the court of the Gentiles, and the Jews had taken it over and made it this circus, which defeated the very purpose 
for the temple of the Gentiles. And Jesus said, but you've made it a den of robbers. And when he says the word but there, that that's a, introduces the contrast for the divine purpose of that temple, the court of the Gentiles area, was to worship God. But the Jews made it into this circus, as I said. That's a reference to Jeremiah 7.11, which says, quote, has this house, which is called by my name, become, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. And you know, as you read the Old Testament, you see where the robbers hid in caves, and they would come out and they would rob and plunder the people. That's what the temple had become. Instead of a house in a place of prayer, it was now a den of robbers run by thieves. And all in the name of God. That's what is so bad about this, Right? And in uh, verse 18 says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So the chief priests and the scribes, this is the first time Mark uses this um, in, in the whole gospel to this point, up to chapter 11. He's never tied the two together like that. After this, he uses it several times through the rest of the the book, but these two, the chief priests and the scribes, they form that group that we call the Sanhedrin. You know, that uh, actually just means an assembly or a council. And, you know, we see them throughout the Old Testament and the Second Temple period and the power they had moving back and forth. But these were the, the only ones who could try the king. And remember where we're going in a few days. They, these, this is the group that would try the king or extend the boundaries of the temple in, in Jerusalem. They were the ones that all the questions of the law were finally put in and through them. And as we'll see, again, the Sanhedrin began with an informal examination of Jesus. Again, before the ousted, as we said, Annas, that you know, comes in the future in a couple days in his life, a few weeks for us. Well, basically, they wanted to find a way to destroy Jesus because they saw his action as an attack on their vested interest. You know, he just really messed us up financially. They, they reacted in hostility, so they feared him. And only in Mark's account does it say they feared him. And that's why they wanted to destroy him, because he pressured them. But in direct... Uh, contrast to that instead of fear the crowd was astonished at his teaching as we've seen several times in mark back in chapter 1 verse 22 they were astonished at his teaching uh, remember th this was the multitude that was from all parts of the world coming for passover and the leaders feared the people were astonished and the verb indicates that jesus struck the people like a blow and I love this translation, knocking them out of their normal state of mind. They were just phew, astonished with it, right? And as was his practice, Mark ends with, when evening came, they went out of the city, back to Bethlehem, I mean uh, Bethany. Now, throughout history, God's people have become unthinking religious people, right? Hardened, and hypocritical, and... Long before this perversion took place, we can see other places in, throughout Scripture where this happened. And one in particular, <clears throat> this week, I, 
I, uh, I've got this devotional that I read in the mornings on the Psalms. And um, this, uh, I'd been studying this, and, and this, uh, this guy, uh, Psalm 50, this is um, William Varner. He's a professor at Master Seminary. And um, he's got Psalm 50 here titled, Here Comes the Judge. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And, and I, I, listen to this. He says, this, is a power, this powerful psalm attributed to Asaph is a theophany, God appearing in fire and tempest on Mount Zion to summon the entire world to the bar of his judgment. All eyes are on him. But his, his eyes are on Israel. The whole psalm is addressed to God's people, speaking first to the unthinking religious and then to the hardened and hypocritical. So to bring them a sharp dose of reality, it is the message which, he, which the prophets and Jesus later put to a people who had forgotten they were dealing with the living God. And then he goes on, you know, the psalm's listed next, and then he kind of breaks it down. And... I, I just, that really struck me. I think it was probably Wednesday or Thursday that I read that one after studying this. And I think, you know, that's the answer for us today, right? So that we know that our temple, us, our bodies, not this big massive building of the temple that we saw here, but that we are careful that, that we don't forget that we're dealing with the living God. You know, I can't just go out and do what my flesh wants me to do. This is the temple of God. And the same thing can happen to us today. You know, Jesus can come in and turn our table over, right? And uh, you ever wonder when you start having those kind of days, if you start reflecting, you know, maybe I know personally, you know, I can look and see, well, you know, where, where have I not been worshiping God the way that I need to be? And certainly, what a warning for churches, right, to, to know that we're not getting like, I mean, we're not going to have churches today with, People, you know, bring me your tithe check and I'll give you cash and, you know, and swap. We don't do that kind of thing or sell sacrifices, but we can certainly get into a place that our worship is hypocritical and um, we don't need to go there. So Jesus leaves and uh, we'll look at the next section next week. And uh, where are, uh, does anybody have any more? Input on that? Yes, sir. Yeah, if, well, the, I listed, did you write down those passages? Uh, a couple of them. Yeah, I think if you, you know, look at those, just that how, I, I think just the, the bearing fruit and provi- provision and let me look at those. Which ones did you write down? I'll have to look at them. Yeah. And to to then, I think the finality, the um, I think it was meant to be, you know. And, and that that's a stark warning. I think you know. There's there's a lot of warning passages in scripture that. Uh, I mean, we are absolutely secure in our salvation, right? No question, no doubt about it. But we should not just breeze right over the warning passages. 
and uh, one is uh, that, you know, no one ever eat fruit from you again. Um, what in Hebrews has several warning passages. We don't just skim over those. God put those in there for a purpose. He put them in there for the purpose of having us challenge ourselves to see, you know, examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. Um, I think those are good things for us to do as believers. I mean, do you ever catch yourself doing something and then you you say, wow, how could I have done that, you know, as a believer? You know, I think the warnings that, that come to that. Did you have something that, Neil? Yeah. Well, when he brings it from the tree into the temple just in within the same couple of hours, yes, because um, yes. he, like I said, he shut down the the uh, the commerce by flipping the tables, and then by not allowing the vessel to come in, he shut down the the worship of that sense. Because it's yeah, I mean, and it certainly is stopped for them now you know, has been for I think it's amazing that nobody stopped it. The the, the police <clears throat> nobody nobody interfered with Yeah, the Romans didn't yeah. I mean really he just yeah. spent all day doing that. Yeah. And nobody stopped it. Yeah. They were afraid of him, right? <laughs> The show was there, right? That, that, that had deceived the people because uh, they were coming in, seeing the priests and the leaders of the temple kind of driving this process and, and they're thinking this is a form of obedience. And I think of the widow's mite where she comes in and Christ <coughs> condemns the Pharisees that they burden her to give of all that she has but her heart being deceived that this was what was pleasing to God. Mm-hmm. Combat, yeah. that God had intended. So it's like at that time Christ broke through the corruption of, of the nation of Israel. That's, that was the moment that put the stop to it, right? Yeah, and extend out what was supposed to happen all along was that the, 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 all nations were to be blessed mm-hmm. through this covenant. And so they definitely were not you know, set aside, but they're in a current, current blindness and rejection mm-hmm. to then where the remnant will be saved as the uh, initial uh, benefit, benefactors of the covenant and the promises. Mm-hmm. And we're simply, you know, receiving the scraps. That's when we were grafted in at that point, I guess right. you could say. Yeah. So, so but yeah. the fig leaf is because we can be just as guilty sure. to form our own spirituality that does not <laughs> comply with... And I think that... And I think that's the warning for us out of all this is as a church in general to be careful of that, to, 
that we're not. Yeah, I mean, because honestly, you know, think if you were there, would you have played into it? You know, or would you have stopped and said, you know, hey, this, this isn't how it's really supposed to be based on these Old Testament teachings. That, well, they wouldn't have said Old Testament, based on the teachings that we have, right? And the, the fact that, um, you know, they knew enough, I guess, to their credit to not take it into their temple. They did it in the court of the Gentiles, but then that kept everybody else from worshiping, like you said. Now you think about that, that and then God used that to then bring it in for us, the Gentiles, at that point. And, and then so. the thing, they were not to resent Israel, mm-hmm. the nations that we, we are... We were really blessed out of it, yeah. <laughs> and we have to be humble before the God's promises and pray for Israel. That yeah. They would be saved. So, yeah. Good. Well, next week we'll pick up there with the continuing on the the fig tree lesson there.